All right, hello everyone, and welcome to what I believe is the sixth installment of By the Numbers. I am joined once again by Alex Nabhari. Alex? Hey, how's it going? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Um, pretty good I'm, considering that, that some of us live in a, either a failed state or a failing state. I'm not sure yeah. which. <laughs> yes, uh, we're going to be exploring that this episode. Ha- has America already failed? Is it failing? <laughs> it's, uh, the answer, in my, I think, to, to uh, give away the plot, I think the answer is yes to both of those statements. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. it's an interesting topic, right? And I have not really carefully considered what a failed state actually entails. But if you start looking at various definitions, the United States does meet a lot of these criteria. Uh Let's see, like one of them is typically the term means the state has been rendered ineffective, is not able to enforce its laws uniformly or provide basic goods and services to its citizens. Like the United States has elements of that. <laughs> it absolutely has elements of that. Absolutely. Uh, the, the one I have in front of me is a state that maintains legal sovereignty but experiences a breakdown in political power, law enforcement and civil society. And yeah. I don't. And I don't think you have to have all of those in complete breakdown for a state to be obviously yeah, yeah, failing the, at them. The, we're, we're working out the Wikipedia definition here, but uh, the, 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 the last sentence of that paragraph basically says it's not clear precisely when a state can be said to have failed. Because the, the, it looks like the, the way that they are defining this, a state maintains a monopoly on violence and legitimate use of force. But – as your level of crime increases to a certain degree and you have other non-state actors involved, eventually it starts to look like the state doesn't actually have a monopoly on legitimate use of force. It looks like other entities do or other entities are competing with it, at which point you can say the state has failed or failing. I mean, it, let's think about this. Uh, I just thought of this from yesterday's TDS. If the state allows mutual combat – is it admitting a failure by allowing <laughs> by allowing yeah. street violence, I mean, basically? Inherently, that sounds like a failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like you're ceding your legitimate use of force and you're saying, okay, well, uh, black inner city gangsters can – or they're not even gangsters. They're just blacks. Yeah, <laughs> just random blacks. I, I fell into the trap of, of pretending like this is some sort of gang issue. It's not. It's not. And these are just random blacks. And they're they're allowed to use force on each other. Yeah, uh, you know, I was uh, I was thinking, what really comes to mind when I think about sort of a failed state is is you know sort of the social state of the population. And yesterday you mentioned on TDS how you you guys were talking about that the bridge that collapsed. Yeah. And how people were saying. And sort of comparing that to how people constantly say that Russia is a failed state. Now, I'm not particularly interested in defending Russia as a society. It's not the society I live in, and I'm not going right. to claim that I would want to live there. But it's it, it, it's a fascinating question, and I use this all the time when I when I write uh, white papers stuff. The American Society of Civil Engineers maintains this huge sprawling website called the infrastructure report card which i've just mm-hmm. sent you a link to and they rate american infrastructure and they do these super detailed reports sometimes they do them by state but when you read this stuff to me this is the best demonstration of 
of a failed state. Forty three percent of American roadways are in poor or mediocre condition. Only. Or only 41 percent are in good condition. All the no, other categories. I, I ride a bicycle thousands of miles. I've never noticed this. <laughs> <laughs> never noticed the fact that because here's the thing that i find very interesting about the way that they do road maintenance it's like every little county and in town and city has their own little fiefdom so they'll they'll pave like part of a road maybe maybe if you're lucky and it's like oh it's a county line gotta stop paving right here it's not not my uh problem <laughs> so you get like if you do get any kind of repair it's extremely patchwork it doesn't feel like it's particularly well organized and then the, i don't know the thing is Generally, they they don't actually do full repaving like they used to. It blows my mind when I see them actually repave an entire street. Usually, what they want to do is just patchwork or chip seal. I don't know. Did, did anybody notice the rise of chip seal in the United States, which happened oh, yeah. uh, I mean, in my from, lifetime? They started doing it. I'm from Michigan, or the worst, the or the second worst roads in the country, and the entire state is just like chip seal from, from yeah. north to south north to south but yeah and i'm like y'all know that's a band-aid right like the chip seal is just supposed to extend the, the life of the road a little bit longer while you get your shit together and then repave it well you know i was i was reading the other day that what even what we think of as repaving isn't even mm-hmm. true repaving a lot of the time what they do is resurfacing they, yeah they only take up the surface and they resurface the road they yep. don't they don't because there's all sorts of other layers below the road, they don't repair that. So even when you, even this resurfaced road has like 40% of the the lifespan of a truly repaved road. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, just the the way that Americans engineer the roads is not up to par with certain other countries. Well, the way it's the way we engineer cities, uh, American infrastructure isn't self-sustaining. It's it, it's ridiculous, and I think that. Be, the state knows this. It knows that the, the infrastructure and the way it develops is not sustainable, and it does it anyway. Mm-hmm. That's failed policymaking. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're talking about the the Strode type sprawl, right. like where right. you just you keep expanding these little businesses, and they have miles and miles of parking lots, and then the tax base to fund all of this isn't actually there, <laughs> so it turns into a mess. Or this this happens with suburbs too, right? Like they yeah. can initially get the money to to do the the infrastructure up front, but then maintaining it just it goes right out the window. Correct, because it, the beautiful leafy green suburb has three or four times the amount of expansive infrastructure to maintain it than that same suburb would if it was row housing or apartments. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not not to mention just the acres and acres of asphalt right Where it, to, yeah. and then of and then if i can hear the objection already like well rural people have infrastructure no rural people dig wells i grew up in a mm-hmm. house that had a well that my parents had to pay for that was not part of a public balance sheet <laughs> yeah yeah or they will force you to dig a well when you actually have a spring and it's just i find that incredibly irritating because uh, a lot of these houses are actually fed by springs but then if you want to sell your house well you have to have a well I didn't you, know that. I wonder. Yeah. If just, Depends where you are. Depends where right. you are. In Virginia, it's like that. That's fascinating. I've never heard that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then the as far as their infrastructure, if you look at rural areas, they tend to cluster everything around a couple of like main road systems or former train track areas, you know, like right. railways uh, or long bodies of water. Where I grew up, <laughs> where I grew up, there were two or three main paved drags. Of course, town was paved, but I was very used to gravel and dirt roads. Mm-hmm. That's the way it is uh, where I'm originally from. These were dirt roads. Right. And, and I don't view that as, I don't view that as a bad thing or under maintained. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, the dirt road is taking you to the tobacco farm. So it's like, okay. correct. <laughs> two, two people live down this road. Yeah. Of course it's dirt. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So as, as far, as far as the infrastructure though, yeah. American infrastructure is legendarily bad. And then we've got this this rash of, uh, which the, statistically it is an increase in train crashes and derailments and things like that, which a lot of that's being sort of driven by our economic model where the the well, train private, systems are. Yeah. Private railroads that in they systematically invest as little money as humanly possible into maintaining the infrastructure. In fact, they literally rip it up. <laughs> Right, right. And it's the same thing with the power. Like, you've got oh, private power companies, and then they don't want to invest in maintaining the lines, so then you have lots of power outages as trees and things fall fall across the power lines. Well, I, yeah, American, so I have a, I actually wrote a post on this forever ago. I've just pulled up. As usual, sources will be in the description. Americans are experiencing more electricity interruptions and for a longer period of time than since... 1930 what <laughs> yes since 19 yes 1930 i mean what i've seen with my own eyes is that they because of the profit motive they increasingly consolidate their power generation and smaller and smaller uh, numbers of facilities because like where, where i live there's actually a local power plant that they've just mothballed and shuttered to save on a tiny little bit of labor cost mostly I mean, yes. I, I may, it may have been like a little bit of an issue, too, with uh, it could have needed some sort of scrubbers or something to reduce the pollution. But it, it was something that was not hugely significant, but they shuttered it. So the power generation is now coming out of Ohio. And you know what? Pa- a, power yeah. grid failures in America have doubled from from 2014 to 2022. Power grid failures in America doubled. Doubled. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, that's 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 like the train crash thing where they've they want to run longer trains, they want to have less crew. They were even trying to figure out a way to just get. I'm like, how how tight are your profit margins? I know they're not that tight. Uh, this is just pure greed. <laughs> this is absolute greed. Like, are you telling me that you you can't afford to have two men operating the same train? You want to get it down to one? <laughs> you gotta have that efficiency gain, Alex. It's all about uh, it's all about efficiency gain. <laughs> I'm like, if 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 I if I were in charge, I would nationalize all the railways and I'd put like six people on each train. Well, Absolutely. Well, this is the nationalization, <laughs> which I I there's a great report. I wish I remembered to grab it and get data out of it. But on the electricity front, there is a fantastic report on how. Uh, deregulation and therefore liberalization of the market has led to massive consolidation and underinvestment because private corporations 
do not do capital heavy investment. They mm-hmm. patch they patch things up until they fail, then they abandon them. Yeah. Yeah, because they follow an incentive structure that doesn't reward that sort of thing of, of doing like a big capital heavy investment. Exactly. Exactly. Unless that investment is connecting like two really big, you know, uh, uh, areas where you're going to make profit, right? Co- connecting a, a nuclear power plant to a very close city and yeah. being able to charge those people money, right? Like, but that's very different than putting forward three billion dollars to upgrade a, a an eight hundred mile, uh, you yeah. know, massive. Yeah. No, of course, what we're talking about here, I don't know if this really establishes a failed or failing state, but what it does establish is that you've got sort of an underlying model that is not particularly good. That's not very sustainable. It has a lot of problems. Like the 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 foundation is very shoddy. And that's well, I think, yeah. I think if you've made policy that doubles power grid failures and you have more interruptions. That's a failure. Then since 1930, <laughs> the state that's has has failed. I think we could call that a failure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, that is <laughs> an actual power failure. No yes, less. Yes, <laughs> East East Palestine is a is the symptom of a failing state. The Chinese regulate whatever that substance was. I forget what it's called. They regulate it. America does not. The, yeah, well, that was the the other thing. Uh, I had gone down a YouTube rabbit hole and I was finding out stuff about the DuPont company and Teflon and the pattern in America of producing a very hazardous chemical, dumping it into a river, uh, just sort of looking at your balance sheet and saying, you know, we'll just pay off whatever the fines are that we get from the EPA. We're just going to keep polluting and we're going to keep using this carcinogenic compound because we did the math. And as it turns out, it's cheaper for us to keep making this this poison because we get more profit from it than we would if we just stopped making it entirely. We can afford to pay our lawyers, basically. It's it's unbelievable. It's just, yeah, it's just unbelievable how criminally evil American corporations are. How they because the, one of the things that's a pattern is they will do in-house research on something, determine that it's a major health problem, and then just bury their own research and keep keep on trucking. Well, of course, the what the I forget. I don't think it was the Sackler company, but anyway, there was the famous case where the the executives of one of the opioid firms got caught sending emails back and forth, where they knew their the mm-hmm. opioids they produced were killing a ton of people. They knew it were killing a bunch of white people, and they were laughing about it. Yeah, and, and that's just that's par for the course for all these these companies, corporations. It's not just them, and the. I think the worst example is actually the Bayer Corporation whenever they had contaminated blood products that had HIV. And what did they do? They just they sold them uh, in Asia. <laughs> they just sold them overseas. They, did, they didn't even heat treat them because their own, their own research and uh, people in their, their organization said, hey, you should at least heat treat this. Maybe we can do something about it, still use the blood products. They wouldn't even do that. So a lot of a lot of people died unnecessarily of AIDS from contaminated blood products that these greedy corporations were insistent on continuing to sell. And I would call that a failure of the state. Yeah, because well, you you allow these people to to kill your citizens. I, I think maybe in a in a way failing to regulate capitalistic corporations yes. in general is a failure. 
and pretending that you don't have to regulate them or occasionally nationalize them when they get out of control. Well, even more than that, the re- the regulatory agencies you do have are are captured by the corporations. Mm-hmm. I always think of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Did you know that most of the time when a drug is going to get approved, the FDA does not do an investigation. They just the company submits to them a Mm -hmm. report. Yeah. And the FDA goes, oh, okay, (laughs) Yeah, this seems fair. You wrote it. You paid the fee. But great. Well, yeah. And I think the real problem is even if you have a regulatory body that does what it's supposed to do, if the penalties aren't high enough. They're just going to keep doing whatever it is that they shouldn't be doing. If you don't go to jail and, and or yeah, risk you, you have to have some pretty like, good draconian punishments to get yes. the kind of outcome you would want. <laughs> the people who I mean, I kind of lean more towards like, yeah, just just nationalize them whenever they do stuff like that. That'll teach oh, you. Oh yeah, lesson. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I am I am a big fan of nationalization. You misbehave. Your corporation is now part of the government. <laughs> you're fired. You're going to jail. <laughs> And you're, you're, you are now government property. Everything you have is no government property. I, I could not agree more. But it's, it's a fascinating sort of failure, maybe if not the state of a political system that is completely off the table in America, particularly. The yeah. most, like, even prosecution is off the table, right? They just pay fines. Oh, you killed. Uh, so, th- you know, this is another statistic I was going to bring up later, but I could bring it up now. A hundred thousand people are now dying annually from drug overdoses in america and a lot of them are still uh, opioid related and no one has gone to jail they don't they just don't talk about it see that's 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 the one thing that the state doesn't fail at is the proper control of their media <laughs> oh yeah they're good at that they are really um, good at that about uh, not talking about certain things they're extremely good at this it fascinatingly fascinatingly American ODs are two two and a half times higher than in Russia. Ooh. Two and a half times. Now wait a minute. I was told that Russia was a failed state. It was full of people that were drinking too much and just dying of alcoholism and overdoses. And they had really awful street drugs like crocodile and stuff. And everybody was just dying from these nasty nasty uh drugs and things. Well, it's actually America apparently. Yeah, fascinatingly, I wish I had the, the so data. So here's, let's jump to a, a real obvious one, if we're going to just compare these two states. Which one has the higher murder rate? Oh, did I, I'm totally blanking now. Um, I don't know if I wrote, no, I'm sorry. I confused those statistics. The U.S. has a two and a half times higher uh, suicide rate than Russia, Oh, yeah. Suicides. I confused. The, this is the thing. So uh, the re, uh, for everyone, the reason I confuse this is because in America, there are about 100,000 white suicides a year now. About 73 percent of them are men. Some years it's about 80 percent, but it's always between 70 and 80 percent men. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's 100,000 whites, just as the just as the same as there's 100,000 drug ODs <laughs> every year. Like we're, we're getting to the point where these totally avoidable social maladies are killing like a quarter million white people a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I, I did look at their, their murder rates. R- Russia and the U S are actually not too far off from each other. It looks like homicide rates anyway. 
I mean, that's not too terribly surprising. Um, you know, Russia is literally, and again, I'm not making an excuse. Again, I wouldn't want to live in Russia, but they're coming out of a failed state, right? Exactly. They're, in, they're exactly. emerging That's the from thing. Yes. a failed state. Yes, they had a because the the homicide rate was higher in the uh, 80s and or late 80s, early 90s, of course, which is when the state was literally failed. Yeah, their I'm suicide sh- rate was higher too. It's halved yeah. since 95. Yeah, because their their homicide rate has been declining consistently year over year over year. Whereas yes, their, you know, their alcoholism, their alcoholism rate has diminished remarkably as well. Yeah. I yeah. can't remember. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just pulling it up right now. Their, their alcohol production has fallen or uh, consumption has fallen about 40%. And I know in the U S it's been on the increase. Yeah. <laughs> alcoholism is on the rise. Okay. Yeah. No, we, it looks like for 2023, I think we're on, no, no, this is for 2020. You know, we have a higher homicide rate than they do now. Oh, I'm not surprised. Yeah, no, we, I, we we currently do have a higher homicide rate. That's not yes. entirely surprising. So I am looking. <laughs> I'm looking at the the alcoholism yeah, tolls. There it is. It, it has alcoholism in the United States from '91 to 2013 jumped from about seven percent to about thirteen percent. So it, essentially, it doubled. And in Russia, it's been on the decline for about 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Just like their homicide rates. Yep. Right. All that stuff's okay. in decline. Again, yeah, we're we, coming we out of being a failed state. Yeah. America is becoming a failed state. <laughs> America's going be- the other way. Right. It's becoming a failed state. I mean, and I, I can't stress enough that it's conscious state policy. I mean, where does fentanyl get, come from? It comes across the border, which is wide open. Right, which is that's part of what's uh, what is a, a characteristic of a failed state is the inability to control your borders because you're supposed to be maintaining some sort of legal sovereignty over the territory. And if anybody can walk across your border and do whatever they want, then you don't really have legal sovereignty anymore. Oh, you yeah. I'm having an armchair moment, though. Like, is are you a failed are you a failed state only when you can't control them or? Are you also a failed state when you refuse to? Control? I knew it was literally like the direction I thought we were going to go in there. Is is it a yeah, if yeah. it's a conscious decision versus? And I don't I don't know because if you look at consistently the decisions that are made in this country, uh, it it appears to be out of anyone's control. It, it seems like the the incentives and parameters of how economic life is supposed to function in America make it a prerequisite that you have permeable borders and you don't actually control these things. That's true. It, ideologically, I, yeah, I, I think I agree. Ideologically, in in the current setup of, of sort of neoliberal America, your only option is massive amounts of, of inflow through open borders. You would have to adopt an entirely new mode of political operation to justify actually enforcing a border regime one of the the, the, the criteria they just, they talk about here is the appearance of refugees involuntary movement of populations <laughs> i'm like huh because uh-huh. I, I can think of different examples of this like obviously you have refugees pouring into the united states but then also if you look at what was happening during covid people were fleeing the cities People, people are, are fleeing the entire state of California. Right. Right. 
<laughs> so internally within the borders, you do have a form of, of refugee movement. And yeah, literally there's, there's a yeah. violent, there's a violent riot <laughs> and people pack their bags and they flee within the same. That's, that's quite literally an internal refugee. That is, yeah, the, that let's is be real. the legal definition. They're leaving the cities, not so much, or most likely, not so much because of the issues surrounding COVID a couple of years ago. It was from the fucking rioting and the violence and the escalating violence. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was without a doubt the George Floyd riots. I, yeah. I am largely skeptical, and now I haven't done significant research on this. I am largely skeptical that people spontaneously chose to move from from Santa Monica to uh, Coeur d'Alene just because they could work on their computer. That I, I, that maybe I'm being obtuse, but that connection doesn't make sense in my brain. You, you, you move from Santa Monica to Coeur d'Alene because there was a riot in central Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is one of these topics. You're just not going to be able to find really good information on particularly not in the media because they they don't want to kind of talk about the consequences of blm and as i have mentioned many times on other shows the media likes to run with really silly ideas like post-covid gun violence as if this is like a symptom of being infected with covid as you go out and you shoot somebody right and moving is a symptom of being able to work on a laptop right is their assertion Right. And so um, I'm pretty sure that it's the black crime within the cities and the, just the general lawlessness. I'm pretty sure that's a big factor. I mean, we're we are getting quite literally to the point this this goes back to a uh, failed state. You know, it's really interesting. I think of something like the Liberian Civil War or. Or the conflict in Afghanistan where. The state had no authority at all over the hinterland. Authority only existed in a couple very large cities or towns. But in America, <laughs> it's sort of yeah. A, so this is yeah. the thing I I wanted to get into is because there's the idea of the failed city. And America has failed cities. It Every has within its borders. Yeah, it has failed cities, like the most obvious one being Detroit. It's very interesting that America just let this happen. It didn't intervene. In fact, it had perverse incentives that encouraged this kind of destruction to occur. And it just continued to go on about its business, even though part of it had just died. It would be like having your toe or something just rot off one day. And you're like, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind that. <laughs> you're not going to you're not going to carterize that wound. Nah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of remarkable, right? You have a nation that just allows certain areas within its border to completely disintegrate. Even more remarkable than that, though, is their their solution to it now. You know, being from Michigan, I I've seen this with my own eyes. Their solution now is like we'll just knock it down. They pay the 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 state of Michigan and the federal government gives Detroit several billion dollars every few years. To just knock things down. Right. We'll, we'll just, we're just going to deconstruct this, this no, urban, this urban hellscape and pretend it doesn't exist. 
I don't know if you have any much data sets on crime in America, but one of the things that they keep circling around to in definitions of failed state is basically failure of policing or an inability to police, which I increasingly think the United States, it's not so much conscious choice. It's it literally has an inability to do policing. It just does not have the staff necessary, and it certainly doesn't have the legal structure to allow you to do this. And in fact, I think a lot of this sort of it feels to me like a lot of the so-called criminal justice reform is effectively America just finding an excuse to not do something that it actually can't do. It makes yeah, so, for a good cover story to be like, well, we, criminal justice reform. It's not because we don't have enough police officers or the our, our ability to enforce order has just completely crumbled. <laughs> it's, this is a reform. No, it's true. They can enforce order. The, um, I was, in fact, just two days ago watching a report out of Rhode Island. The state police there only, pardon me, the state police used to own like five big really beautiful sort of colonial style police stations and they permanently shut one down and they wanted to reopen it, but they can't recruit anyone. And this got me into researching 65% of law enforcement agencies in America cannot get up to their, their desired Mm -hmm. employment levels and 78% of them can't even meet recruiting uh, they can't even find recruits to try to do like, mm-hmm. and this is a combination of people resigning and this recruiting crisis. So yes, I do think that when, in fact, I just watched a video today where uh, uh, the Daily Wire recorded uh, Ron DeSantis walking around San Francisco talking about how awful San Francisco is. And there was one point when he talked to cops and he was blaming prosecutors that don't enforce the law, which is very true. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. There are prosecutors that don't enforce the law. But the problem is San Francisco has like an 800. The region has like a shortage of 800 officers and a mass resignation crisis. And the response to that appears to be just saying, well, they won't. The the uh, the D.A. won't enforce the law. That's mm-hmm. the same. Now this seems like something of a post hoc justification. That's what I increasingly feel is a lot of the stuff is is, is is to paper over a more serious and structural issue that because you talk about a inability to recruit for law enforcement, it's not just law enforcement, it's fire, it's EMS, it's healthcare in general, nursing, what have you. It's a lot of different fields all at the same time. It's uh, yeah, the- the healthcare yeah. one is fascinating. I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day, and you and I were kind of talking about it. There are often uh, there are a lot of stories right now about overburdened healthcare. Mm-hmm. The the staff are are worked like dogs, and and all of the you know all of this these terrible tragedies. But it's because the way that we educate and recruit and utilize healthcare professionals is remarkably stupid inefficient and poorly designed and our excuse for it is just they work too much yeah yeah well i mean they have too many patients like i the the, this is actually a literal failure is the rural healthcare has failed Uh, it's just been been deconstructed it doesn't exist 
Yeah, it's, it, it has actually, and this is due to the type of economic system that underpins the United States due to the perverse incentives that are just woven into the bedrock of the United States, but it killed the local healthcare system entirely. Uh, I mean, I, I saw it with my own two eyeballs where I was, I was working at a uh, hospital down in Stewart, Virginia, and that hospital is now overgrown with weeds. It's shut down. That was actually the most chilling thing I ever experienced in terms of healthcare was watching a small hospital where many members of the community have been born shut down. And that actually, that to me felt like a literal, because it was a literal failure, like a state failure on some level that's that the, the country, the nation had experienced an actual visible decline in something like a, a hospital shutting its doors. That's not something that's supposed to happen in a civilized country, you know, Especially whenever you look back with a little historical perspective, you're like, but this hospital used to uh, used to birth children here. You know, babies were born here. They used to treat all kinds of problems. I mean, hell, I worked there. We saved people from heart attacks, all kinds of stuff. And now it's just gone. It's It's remarkable what you're conceding by doing that, too. Right. Your your argument is basically. Or the state is basically putting forward the position that. Uh. Yes, you now have to drive. I don't know how long people would actually have to go. I'm just making up a figure, but I can use the one from my hometown that doesn't have a hospital anymore. Um, you, you, yes, you now have to drive 45 minutes in a medical emergency. You just, you just or more have, than that, more than that, yeah, easily. You just have you could, to do this. Yeah, you you could be up to an hour, two hours, depending on the situation. Yeah, right. And this for this forced uh, that region to try to cobble together a paid EMS system, which is a whole nother can of worms. And of course you have shortages trying to get providers, which increases transport time, et cetera. But this is all like indicative of a more structural failure because they, they literally don't have enough people, particularly in EMS. There's just not enough people. There's not enough providers. Uh, nursing seems to be in a similar, similar situation so, there. I was looking into this and a big part of the problem. Now I'm going to, I have to preface this so that people don't flip out. I am not about to intimate that women are bad doctors. I have had female (laughs) doctors. There are female healthcare professionals in my family. They are all wonderful. I am not about to intimate that they are bad doctors. That said, about 40% of all women who go through medical training or graduation leave within six years. Mm Mm-hmm. And of women who become general surgeons, 25% or attempt to become general surgeons, 25% drop out during residency, as opposed to 17% of men. Like we, we have constructed this a medical system in a way that we're investing resources in training personnel who then we never get to utilize because they don't do the job. Oh, yeah. No, that, that's across the board. The same thing with the. Uh uh, I lived in High Point, North Carolina at one point, and I believe that the EMS workers at Guilford, on average, lasted about three years. Yeah, three years is, is what yeah, you get out of them. doesn't burn surprise them me at all. Um, just burn them out. But yeah, I, I think it's very interesting in America that for women, nursing is sort of perceived as like the, the go-to. Like if you want to make some yeah. money, become a nurse. Yeah. And I think that's kind of interesting from a, a broader economic perspective because it's not a productive job, right? It's a type of service job, right. and increasingly that's how the United States functions. It doesn't do anything except services. 
it's failing in regards to even having like a productive economy. Well, there's yeah, there's no there's no productive found. Well, this is the thing you provide. This this is something I always go on about uh, privately. The reason that you have services is to provide something that a productive industry cannot. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone makes the coffee, et cetera. Someone does your surgery. Yeah. Yeah, but sure. once once you don't have a productive economy, there's no there's no cash inflow. There's no there's no movement of mm-hmm. of goods and capital except for within this service sector. And you're not building anything by everyone providing each other with coffee or surgery or an internet connection. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Not, exactly. There's no productive base. Um, and again, this was the, the state made a conscious policy choice to pursue a, a free trade maximalist um, policy in this regard. It decided that it was worth it to deindustrialize. This was an this was a conscious policy choice. Right. It's a conscious policy choice that is causing America to fail as a country. Like it is, it, I, I think we could say on a lot of metrics, it is actually failing. Like uh, yeah, policing, I, it's failing. Healthcare, failing. <laughs> the, the question is, are there areas where it has actually failed completely? And yeah, we have cities where it's basically failed. Um, I think infrastructure. I, uh, in my opinion, the state has completely given up on trying to maintain infrastructure. There's a concrete example of a failure. I'm going to try to find this real fast, but it involved some sort of gathering and police just not even attempting to contain it, just not even making the attempt. Well, well, this happened all during the Floyd riots, right? I always remember there was a woman in Virginia, actually, who was in her car with her child and they were surrounded by a, a rioting angry mob of blacks and a woman called 911 mm-hmm. and the 911 operator responded I am so sorry ma'am we have been told not to dispatch units during this protest <laughs> the state conceded its right to its obligate number one its obligation to protect people and number two it conceded its right to control the streets Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't find the thing I was looking for, but yeah, it, it was it was a it was a situation where literally the, there was some sort of violent thing going on with a huge crowd of people, and the police just sort of stood by and let it happen. And that's sort of the thing. If you have enough people involved in these kinds of situations, it is possible to have too many for the police to control. Very possible. It seems to be happening more and more frequently when that is actually literally a failed state situation you can't manage people committing crimes in front of you yeah riot control has always been about you know the perception of force as opposed to raw numbers to overwhelm a crowd but now if you can't even project the perception of force you're no good Right. And I, I think people may want to cope and say, well, this is you know, it's a conscious choice, but things have gone on for so long at this point. Even if they wanted to, I don't think they could pull it off. I don't no, they think can't they have. Recruit, they can't recruit yeah. more cops. They can't recruit more police officers. The state, the, uh, the state of Florida offers a $5,000 sign on bonus and they still have a policing shortage. Mm-hmm. 
the, the state of Michigan, I think at one point it was above ten thousand yeah. dollars, and they Michigan still has a policing shortage. The state of New York is completely fucked. No one wants to be a cop in New York. No one wants to be a cop in Atlanta. I. I, yeah, even, it's, uh, even if it began as a policy choice, you can they cannot now come out of this. This is now in, entrenched. Yeah, yeah, because I, I found it. It was Lakeview, Chicago. Hundreds of teens do a takeover. So they basically because that's a thing that happens now in America. I don't know if people are aware of this, but they have takeovers where crowds of, of blacks just take over an intersection, street, what have you. They swarm it, and the the police are increasingly just powerless to do anything about it. Well, yeah, I remember uh, this has been happening so much that a few states passed laws allowing people <laughs> to drive through these crowds. Um, hmm. But imagine that. But even imagine the implication of that. Even, yeah, yeah, the implication of that. <laughs> the, the states failed, and now you have to take matters to your own hands. Right. That's the problem. The, the state is saying, okay, we can't, we can't maintain the 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 safety of drivers therefore you're just allowed to plow through people in the road yeah which i was before we started this this podcast today i was actually watching some some video content on legitimate failed states and a characteristic of them is these citizens themselves end up having to take matters in their own hands Uh, they'll complain about the crime and how they have to actually get out there and do something about it because no one else will that's a failed state. If you have to if you have to engage in vigilantism, you're living in a failed state, which is kind of funny because a lot of right-wingers sort of have this attitude that uh, the Second Amendment is really important so I can have guns to protect myself from criminals. And I'm like, but why do you have so many criminals running around in the first place? Right. Like why is this, no, why is this there's prompt? There's no examination of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this, this is sort I'm, of the I'm problem. I'm not saying you can't have your guns, but – Right. If you have violent crime as a problem that requires you to deal with it, your state is failed. Yeah, absolutely. There's, and and they're and supposed this is, to protect you. <laughs> this is always one of my critiques of the right. Is in particular, they don't ask the, they don't ask the question. Right? They don't, they don't inquire as to why it is necessary to carry a firearm everywhere. It's just because crime. Yes, but why is there crime? <laughs> like we're we're not interrogating this premise as as a, we're not interrogating any of these premises we've just mentioned as a as a society. Yeah, yeah, because the society itself is, and you you could say that socially America has failed. It's a little different than having a failed state, but socially the, that fabric has been destroyed. It doesn't exist. And that's one of the reasons why depression and suicide is so common in the United States. I, I was actually looking at some data that the Appalachian region has very high rates of depression, which I thought was odd from my personal perspective. Because I'm like, but that's a beautiful place to live. I live in the Appalachian Mountains. It's, a, it's wonderful. The Blue Ridge is a gorgeous place to live. But you don't have a functioning society. People aren't plugged into social networks. So... It leads to all of these problems with depression and suicide and drug use. Yeah, deaths of uh, what are the what is it called? Deaths of despair. Deaths of despair. Yeah. Imagine, imagine. <laughs> that's an amazing. That's an amazing category in itself. Imagine that your society has such a problem with loneliness, depression, poverty. You you take your pick, drug use, that you now just have a category that you call deaths of despair. Yeah. People are dying. 
it is what it is, you know. People there, they die of despair. I don't know what to do. Anyway, I gotta, I gotta go pass another tax cut. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, the Great, remark- we, we were going to talk a little bit, I think, about credentialism and sort of how, what kind of solutions. And this reminds me of Joseph Tainter talking about the collapse of complex societies, and his his thesis essentially they start over investing in complexity. That's sort of their only tool to fixing any problem. As well, we. We gotta we gotta tr- pursue a more sophisticated solution to the issue, and you can see this with like the rise of credentialism of sending people to school for seven years, uh, increasing demands that people have more and more education, and it's like you've hit diminishing returns on that. That's not helping you fix any problems. It's making the problems worse. It's making them a lot worse, and well, everyone absolutely. seems to operate I, off that assumption. America has you and I sort of we talked about this when we were texting the other day. America has more qualified four- and six-year degreed engineering graduates than ever before. There are millions of these people, legions of them, and they still – they can't make (laughs) – they can't make the sewer system in in, in New York City work correctly anymore. They can't – they can't build a glass factory in Texas because no one can fix the equipment – that they can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was just this example out of uh, oh, can't some, build a submarine. <laughs> it was some. It was some stupid little town in in uh, Oregon or Nevada in that area, and they had a failure of a really old piece of power distribution equipment. I mean, super old, like ninety-eight mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, seventy years old. And they were told like we don't. The power company said like we don't know how to build this again it'll take us four or five years to build you another one because america just doesn't have the capacity to build transformers right like and again this is despite there being more engineers than ever before with four and six year degrees yeah because people don't understand that there's diminishing returns on this type of investment in education because what's what's the answer to like everything is like, education we gotta have more education we gotta have more schooling blah 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 but no that's that's a flawed assumption and one of the things I would love to study is to go back and look at how many innovations in the United States and breakthroughs resulted from people who weren't actually recipients of any kind of a lot education. a <laughs> lot i I know I know for a fact the answer is a lot i this would be a good thing for us to collect figures on, but the answer is a lot. Yeah, I mean, how many smoky eunuchs just sort of invented things on their own through doing stuff like motor racing? Because that's that's actually where a lot of technological innovation automobiles came from, is from motor racing. All these people they didn't have degrees, they weren't engineers. These people were running race teams. They just competed and figured things out. <laughs> Well, this they, is they have of, practical skills, you know, knowledge. This is this is kind of another thing you and I very briefly talked about privately was how the massive proliferation in various particular fields of study, right? They invent new fields. So you architecture now, if you want to become an architect, you can go and just become an, an industrial architect. Mm-hmm. Um, city pl- city planning, like. City planners, before, the same people who designed buildings designed cities. Architects were city planners. Now city planning is a completely different discipline, totally unrelated to the look and feel and architecture of a place. And 
we have this massive prolip- road engineering road engineer fucking idiots uh pardon my french we now have road engineering as its own sort of transit engineering as its own sort of field we have all of these people with all of these extremely specialized areas of knowledge but every time you look at all of the categories of of a modern what is now post-industrial society the quality of life just goes down yeah. it's only going down I know there is a figure, I think Tainter has studied this, a funny last name. He was looking sort of like per capita innovation and how it's declined over time in a lot of places, Well, which is kind of interesting. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there, but it's, it's interesting that as education <clears throat> has become emphasized, as the demand for credentials has gone up, the actual innovation seems to be declining. Well, right, because you're not teaching people how to problem solve. You're teaching people how to interact within a prescribed system. And then over specialization, yeah. I learned this in in taking my international relations and political economy courses. They, aside from like a few technical terms, they didn't teach me anything. They didn't like I. It did not teach critical thing. It, Everyone was taught how to interpret an already existing prescribed system. Yes. And the, I don't the, I don't yeah. think the hard sciences at this stage are going to be any different. Everyone is educated to interpret a, a already existing system, not to innovate that. Yeah, no, because that's that's one of the things I observed in all of my formal medical training is they will teach you systems you might learn anatomy physiology you might learn all of these these paradigms but they don't really teach you anything about clinical reasoning that's not something that seems to get any real attention whatsoever is like well what's the epistemology i'm using to make these kinds of decisions that's just no one addresses that that's one of the reasons you get bad outcomes if they taught you that you'd be able to make different decisions and you'd be able to defend them on the basis of reasoning, and they don't want that. They want you only to have a defense within literally a prescribed handbook of responses. Yes, yes. They want you to stick to the flowchart, to the protocol, and go down through the, the, the flowchart. And if you deviate from that, you are in big trouble. And I, Even I, though you might have a very rigorous intellectual defense for why a certain intervention does not make sense, and you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> right. And the truth, the, tr- the the sort of, it is kind of post-truth and it's post-reasoning for sure, right? No, we don't, we don't care about your reason. <laughs> we care that you didn't check the box. Yeah, and there's this, I mean, we're kind of going off in the weeds here, but yeah, there's, there's this thing where what was true yesterday is no longer true and you're supposed to immediately adapt to that. And you, I saw that all the time in medicine is that a, a certain protocol for, I don't know, chest pain. You have a, a certain set of things you're supposed to do if you have somebody presenting with chest pain. And this would change. This would change. And, and no one would stop and say, well, wait, wait a minute. So what were we doing wrong before? Uh, if this keeps changing, does that imply there's something critically wrong with how we approach our problem solving? <laughs> if we're having to constantly revise what we're doing, particularly since the problem hasn't changed, it's still the same set of physiological issues. So why do we keep reversing ourselves? No, I I don't know if it's off in the weeds because you can apply the same logic. Uh, I am I don't usually talk about this in my work, but I'm a huge fan of 
sort of the original impetus of policing, which was men on foot, visible and interacting mm-hmm. with their communities. It literally preventative policing. And yeah. we don't do that anymore. Police only respond to emergencies that are already occurring or occurred. Yeah. Yeah. And dispatched. right. And they, and every time we're dealing with an issue of crime, we don't really deal with preventative crime. We deal with, well, how can we better respond to this? The and only we're constantly police? changing methodology. And it's, it's the same thing that you just described with medicine. And I, yeah, I, that's just a marker of a state that, you know, has given up, <laughs> has, has given up on attempting to actually address a problem. Yeah, on a more structural level, it's a it's a it's a situation where you can't solve the problems. You don't have you don't have the 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 methodology you would need to even approach solving a problem. Your your imagination is too limited. You're too trapped in your existing paradigm. The the sort of the realism. But yeah, mentioning the the policing, the only places I ever see police just out and about having a presence, it's small white towns that already have no crime. <laughs> Yes. Well, because like a cop he can leave yeah. his he can leave his car and know he he knows he won't get shot. <laughs> <laughs> Which I always found that to be an, an irony too. Is it's like why is there so much police presence in this area that has no crime rate? Well, it's funny. I, I you know I grew up in a ninety six percent white area, to, essentially entirely white, and my town had <laughs> we had the town police station. We had mm-hmm. the count. We had the county. Same thing uh, where I live. We had the county police station, and then we had the Michi- uh, Michigan State Police Station, all in the all in the same yeah. town. You could not turn a corner without a cop uh, driving down the road. Yeah, and, like, and these, okay, yeah. And the, why the are all these all these yeah. fucking people are here when forty five minutes in another direction is our two major black urban areas that. Uh, you, you, every time you turn on the news, it's like, oh, so and so, there was another shooting today. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, it, some of this feels like the incentives and the cowardice of the people involved here, because they they know that they can go and work in this tiny little town and not have to ever deal with uh, using their gun. All they they have to do is just uh, pull over motorists and collect revenue. Freaking harass motorists. Yeah, which that's that's all. That's all another tangent. Is just the yes, it is. Yeah, that is a very the the small town that has a police department that it absolutely doesn't even need because they also have county police and then all they really do is they set up a speed trap and then just do revenueing all day long. And then I don't know. I could I could rant about this because the yes, so could I. The the problem it's like the town police their jurisdiction is so small and everything within their jurisdiction is is effectively zero crime. Meanwhile. Out in the county where there's actual problems, oh, we don't go out there. We don't go deal with the guy who's making meth well, in his trailer because he's one, out in the county. There's one county cop. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. There, there's, there, 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 are, there are all kinds of issues here. But I do think throughout the – because we're approaching our hour and we're both very dogmatic about this. Right. Um, I do think we've quite well established that – whether or not America is a failed state, it is certainly a failing state in various degrees and in various geographic locations. And I made the comment to you right before we started the show that, number one, I do not believe that what we currently conceive of as America can be saved 
And if a new political order arises, were it to arise, whatever that builds, it won't be this America. It would have to be a complete, just from the ground up, totally different. Well, yeah, even totally even different. even if you quote unquote saved an institution, you would have to radically transform it to such a degree that it would effectively be unrecognizable. You might occupy the same building, but it's right, not exactly. the same institution. Yeah. It might have the same name, yeah. but it, it's no, not the, going to be the same thing. The, the, the other thing it's, uh, I think we've established is that the United States is failing, and it also doesn't have the problem-solving ability to reverse course. It can't do it. It can't do it. It's too locked into thinking within its own paradigms, using its own same set of failed solutions again and again. And it doesn't have the imagination or wherewithal. And we're not going to innovate our way out of the crisis either, because that's the other well, really we, common delusion that we people have. hit max efficiency gain. You, you cannot rationalize any sector of the economy any more than it's already been done. We, we, we are at peak everything. <laughs> like, you can't. <laughs> yeah, and this, this is a common cope. That's another thing that Joseph Tainer has, has talked about is people thinking that you can innovate your way out of a crisis. That's not how crises are resolved. <laughs> you don't just have a breakthrough and, oh, the problem's fixed. That, that's really not historically the way things unfold. And as we've established, too, if you've got declining innovation in general, if people are not as good now at coming up with solutions and inventing new things as they used to be, it gets even harder to try to use that as a, as a way to fix a problem. You know, it's the not even, like, yeah. The even more remarkable implication with what you just said there is we have more, quote unquote, experts than ever before right. and declining innovation. And what we've done is we have created massive, highly educated classes of people whose entire interest is not in problem solving, but in keeping to a prescribed book, Mm -hmm. which is actually a hindrance to attempting to resolve any issue. Right. Right. And I, and I think at the end of the day, whatever solutions eventually arise to deal with problems are going to be completely outside the realm of the the political framework which the U.S. currently operates under. It will be, it will number one, it will die because it is dying, and number two, whatever comes next will be a, a wholesale replacement. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, you you could look at any individual sector, law enforcement, healthcare, whatever. You can't actually reform it. It needs no. to just be destroyed completely, which will probably fall apart on its own. And then you have to start over with completely different assumptions about how it should work. Yeah, precisely. I mean, you come in, you come into the void and you say, all right, that failed. Here is a completely new. <laughs> we're yeah. trying this. It's, it's totally new. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a wholesale. Uh, it's a wholesale new approach. Sorry, we're done with uh, we're done with whatever that was. All yep. right, Alex. Well, any any final thoughts? Um, I think we're at an hour. We're going to keep we it are? down. Hour. I think an, an hour-long show is good. Oh, yes. It's ideal for me. <laughs> I only it's do it's ideal for everybody shows. involved. And generally, <laughs> if I'm consuming content, I like it to be around an hour. Right. A half-hour drive to work, half-hour drive back, yeah. hour mowing the lawn. It's perfect. Yeah. All right, everyone. Well, we will see you next time. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you.